lawgiver shall not depart from his feet. Now a scepter is uh, something that shows identification. It's kind of like a, a shield, uh, a flag, or whatever. And so he says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah is the tribe that's been chosen by God in his providence of which his son will come into this world. Now that's important as you read the book of Hebrews. When you look at Hebrews chapter 7, you'll find where Jesus Christ as our great high priest uh, did not come from the tribe of Levi. And the tribe of Levi was set apart for the priesthood. But there's going to be a change, and I like to say a little bit about that more, just a little bit more, a little bit later. And so Judah takes the leadership position. He goes back over the, the details of what Joseph had said. He goes back over the circumstances. He reminds his father. He says, except we go down, he says, uh, it's going to be a matter of life or death. And those are the very words that Jacob used the first time. He sent his sons down into Egypt. He says, you need to go down and get us some food, uh, therefore, that we might live and die not. Uh, we find where Judah is going to use the exact same words. The situation is exactly the same, but I have a feeling he was reminding his father of what his father had said previously. So this is the situation. It's becoming getting kind of dire now. And now Jacob is going to give his... Uh, blessings. He's going to allow them to go back and to take Benjamin. But I want you to notice something here in Genesis chapter 43 and in verse 8. And Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. This is going to affect all everybody. There's not going to be any exceptions here. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. Now, notice a word that Judah uses here. He says, I will be surety for him. That word surety is a very important word. It's a, here's a very important doctrinal principle I want to present to you. The word surety means that you make a guarantee. You're see, saying that all the provisions of the agreement will be carried out. I will be surety for that. But notice, what if that doesn't happen? All Judah is able to give Jacob here is that I'll bear the blame forever. Now that couldn't have been too much encouragement for Jacob. He's not concerned about, I don't think, who's going to bear the blame. He's concerned that his son Benjamin, who's going, he's going to allow to go back to Egypt, down to Egypt with his brothers, is going to return. You see, Judah can't really guarantee that. He says, I'll be surety, but he couldn't really guarantee that. Oh, in the book of Philemon in the New Testament, that's that little one chapter book just before you start reading the book of Hebrews, you're going to find where Paul writes this letter to a man by the name of Philemon. It's on behalf of a servant by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus was a servant to Philemon, but he left. He didn't leave under the best of circumstances. But he and Paul end up being together. And it becomes a great blessing to Paul, a great asset to Paul. Paul is writing this letter to Philemon to encourage him to receive Onesimus back. He, he tells him the things that he's been to him in his life in ministry. So he's encouraging Philemon to do that. Philemon was a very wonderful man. There's a number of wonderful things said. It won't take you a few minutes to read that little one chapter book. 
But here's what he says in verses 18 and 19. He says, if he's done anything against thee, put that on my account and I will repay it. Now this is Paul saying, I'll be surety for it. Whatever he owes, I will pay it. That's what surety is. You're guaranteeing payment, you see. But men are frail and men are weak. And men do fail because of frailness and weakness. And we can't always carry out what we say we carry out. I don't care how sincere you are, how serious you are. We're just prone to fail, you see. We never know what tomorrow is going to hold. So you see the uh, situation when men become surety for somebody else. It'd be like you going down to the bank. A lot of times fathers get into this. Their sons go for their first loan, you know. And the bank said, well, we'll loan him the money if you'll co-sign. <laughs> when you co-sign, you're saying, if he fails to make the payment, I'm responsible. I'll see to it that the payment is made. If he fails to make the payment, I'll make the payment. If he doesn't pay off the car loan, I'll pay off the car loan. In essence, he's becoming surety for his son. But let's suppose the father dies. <laughs> then who's surety for the son after that, you see? Uh, it's like a bail's bondsman. Uh, he goes and he puts up, you know, the bail for somebody who's been arrested. They let him out of jail. And the bail bondsman is saying, I'm putting this up as a pledge to guarantee that he'll be here at court time. Now, how many times does that fail? Well, I don't have the statistics, but I can assure you it fails. <laughs> it doesn't always work out, does it? He doesn't always show up, does he? So in man's world, you see the weaknesses of this, but not in God's world. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, the Lord says to Abraham, know of a surety that my people, your seed, shall be a stranger in a land that's not theirs. He's talking about Abraham's offspring, the nation of Israel, who's going to be a stranger in a land, which is the land of Egypt. It's going to be a stranger in a land that's not theirs. He says they'll be there for 430 years. He says, but I will judge that nation and I will bring them out and they shall come out with great substance. Now he says to Abraham, know of a surety. Now, God can do that. God is guaranteeing that they're going to go to that land and be there for over 400 years. He's also guaranteeing he's going to bring them out. He's also guaranteeing they won't come out empty handed. He's also guaranteeing that they'll come out, you see, with great substance. God can do that, and you can mark it down. But let's come over here to the seventh chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, we read where it says, For Christ became surety for us for better testament. You see the word testament is used for the first time here in this verse. It'll be used seven times in the book of Hebrews. Christ has become surety for us. All right, that means that Christ has made a pledge, you might say. That Christ has made a guarantee that whatever the Lord's people owe, and they owed a debt they could never pay, we owe a, we owe a sin debt that none of us could pay individually, and we certainly couldn't pay it collectively. But the Lord Jesus Christ became surety for us. That means God is not going to look to you and to me for payment because he knows we can't pay. Isaiah chapter 64 says all of our righteousness before God is like filthy rags. And uh, we all like the leaves of the tree. You know, our iniquities are like the leaves of the tree. They fade away. 
That's our worth right there. All of our righteousness are as filthy rags. And I've said before, I really don't know where there's a market for filthy rags. <laughs> if you had a, a barrel full of filthy rags, where would you take it? Anybody would buy it. No, nobody would buy a barrel full of filthy rags, you see. In other words, we're worthless. Uh, so God can't look to me for payment. He can't look to you for payment. So who's going to make the payment? Well, Jesus Christ is going to make the payment. And the payment Jesus Christ is going to make is not going to be a down payment. Salvation has never been on an installment basis. Jesus is not going to make all the payments but one. And he's going to leave the last one to you. If he leaves the last one to you, you're sunk. I can tell you that now. You don't have the means to make a payment of any kind. First payment, last payment, any payment in between. The Lord Jesus Christ would make payment for the debt. He's become surety for us. And we see that word testament now used for the first time. That word testament can be translated sometimes covenant. But that word testament brings into the picture, into view, a will and last testament. Now, I'm, I'm really surprised at the amount of people that I've known over the years and do know who've never made out a will. And I guess they just think, well, I'll have plenty of time somewhere down the road. But, you know, that always happens, does it? And when you don't have a will and you pass away, you allow the government to get involved. You know how disastrous that is. So you don't want that to happen. If you don't have a will, I encourage you to make one. Now, before you die, you can change it. I know somebody changed one several different times. He'd get upset with his children, he'd change it. And then he'd get upset with his children again, he'd change it again. I mean, his children learned not to upset him. <laughs> they kept changing the will, and every time he changed it, they was getting worse off. I mean, that's a true story. Okay. Uh, see, a will is not in effect until the testator dies. The testator has to die for the will to go into effect. Now, you can read this in Hebrews chapter 9. But Hebrews chapter 7 and chapter 9 go hand in hand together. The Lord Jesus Christ is surety for us. He's surety of a better testament. That means he's the one who's going to take care of the payment. He guarantees it. Now, you can mark that down and you can receive comfort from that great truth that we have a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ who hung upon a cross, laid down his life, and he paid the sin debt totally and completely on Calvary. That's when the legal aspects of the salvation of all the Lord's family, every child of grace, took place. Now, when you're born of the Spirit, that's the vital phase of your salvation. When God borns you again, that's when the merits of the shed blood on Jesus Christ are personally and individually applied to you and into your life. That's the vital aspect of salvation. But I can tell you this, that doesn't happen to all of us at the same time. But the legal aspects of salvation took place for all of us at the same time. That took place nearly 2,000 years ago. That took place on Calvary. That took place when the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, laid down his life and paid the sin debt once again. It was taken care of. The T's were crossed and the I's were all dotted. Now in the seventh chapter of Hebrews, this is where you're going to find where Jesus sprung from the tribe of Judah. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. There was going to be a change in the order of the priesthood. Now why is that? At least three or four reasons for that. First of all, we're told that there was no perfection by Leviticus priesthood. Why was that? Because the priests were imperfect. The priests were sinners. And therefore, their work was imperfect. An imperfect priesthood. Imperfect men. Imperfect offerings and sacrifices from that point of view. 
All the offering sacrifice the Old Testament never moved sin. It never did away with sin. It was just a reminder that sin had to be dealt with on behalf of sinners. And it was a picture and type of the Lord Jesus Christ who would come in this world as our great high priest. Psalms 110 verse 4, a long time, hundreds of years before Paul wrote Hebrews chapter 7, we find where it says, For thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's mentioned twice in the book of Hebrews. Here's an order different than the order of Aaron. The order is going to be changed. Aaron was a priest after a carnal commandment. What does that mean? It means that he had to satisfy physical requirements. You go back and look and read in the book of Leviticus, you'll find where there were physical requirements for a priest. He had to meet those physical requirements. He had to meet the requirements of the ceremonial law. That was outward, that was physical. The Lord Jesus Christ came in this world and he met the requirements that were somewhat different. He had to live a perfect life. He had to live a sinless life. You see the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And therefore he was qualified from that point of view. We find that the offerings and sacrifices once again were by imperfect men. Uh, the system was perfect as God gave it, but the offerings and sacrifices couldn't be accepted to put away sin because sinful men were making the offerings and sacrifices. They were the offerings and sacrifices of lambs and sheep and goats and bulls, etc., etc. It requires something greater and better than that. The word better is used 13 times in the book of Hebrews. 13 chapters and 13 times we read the word better. Everything about Christ was better than what they had experienced prior to him coming into this world, you see. So we'll take a look at the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ in comparison. Imperfect men, perfect man. Numerous, thousands of sacrifices, one sacrifice. Imperfect over here, perfect over here. Hebrews 10, 14, wherefore by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. The priesthood over here was a changeable priesthood because the priest kept dying. Every time a priest died, there was another priest to take his place. And he would do his work for a while, then he would die, another one took his place. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told, ever liveth. He ever liveth. After his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ said in Revelation 1 and 18, he says, I'm he that liveth. Behold, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. The priesthood is not going to change in the Lord Jesus Christ because he's not going to die. There's not going to be another high priest to follow the Lord Jesus Christ because he is not going to die. It's an unchangeable priesthood in the Savior. And he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints of God. That's why the order was changed. That all leads up to Hebrews 7.22 where it says, For he became surety for us. He's the guarantee. You can count on it. <laughs> It's not going to fail. See, I've said this before. Uh, you know, we are instructed in God's word that we're to be truthful and honest and to keep our promises. And so if you ever make a promise, you better keep that promise. But sometimes we make a promise that we think we can keep and then it turns out we can't. It's easy to overpromise, isn't it? Can God overpromise? Is it a possibility that God can overpromise? No, it's not. God cannot overpromise. Whatever God has promised, it'll come to pass. He's never failed in one promise yet. And by the way, eternal life is based upon a promise. Titus 1-2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now, Judah 
tells his father Jacob, he says, I'll be surety for him. The best he can offer is this. If I don't bring him back, I'll bear all the blame. Now, I don't know how Jacob would get much encouragement out of that or very much comfort out of that. Do you? If I don't bring him back, I'll bear all the blame. That's the best he can do. The best Paul can do was to offer to pay for anything that Onesimus owed Philemon. And I'm sure Paul uh, would have done that if it came down to that. Don't know it ever came down to that, but I know no matter how sincere Paul was, he didn't know what tomorrow was going to bring. Something can easily happen where he would not be able to be surety for Onesimus. But I can assure you, Jesus Christ is our surety. He always has been and always will be our surety. Now, let's look in uh, verse 11, 43 and 11. Their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, if that's the case, if you cannot go back unless you take Benjamin, do this. Take the best fruits in the land in your vessels and carry down the man a present, a little balm, a little honey, spices, and myrrh, and nuts, and almonds, and take double money in your hand. And the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carried again in your hand, per adventure, it was an oversight. Now you remember that from a couple of weeks ago. When they returned, they didn't know it until they were all the way going on, you know, back on their journey, going back home, and they, one of them opened their sack and found their money there. They, they had paid for it, they didn't put it back there, but Joseph put it back there. They were not going to be able to pay for Joseph's provisions. <laughs> That's a picture of God's grace, you see. So now Jacob says, well, you've got to take the money back that you brought back the first time, and now you've got to take money with you to pay for the food the second time, so he gave them double money. That's just like man, isn't it? He didn't learn the lesson the first time. If they couldn't pay for it the first time, they're not going to be able to pay for it the second time, right? And you'll find that out later as we continue in this uh, in the life of Joseph. But anyway, this is Jacob's idea, and he wants to send presents. It reminds me of uh, Naaman. If you read in the book of uh, 2 Kings, uh, chapter 5, a man with the name of Naaman, he has leprosy. A little maid that's in the camp says, oh, that he was uh, back in the land of Israel, says there's a prophet back there uh, who could help him. And so the king is going to send him there, but when he sends him, he's not going to send him empty-handed. He's going to take a, a great deal uh, of money and different things with him. I want to just read that to you here. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 5. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. So what do we have here? We have somebody who thinks he's going to have to pay for his, for his healing. He's got to buy his healing. Nothing been said by the maid he had to buy his healing. She said, oh, that he was back in the land of Israel where the prophet could heal, the, heal Naaman. But he thinks he's got to take all this. So whenever he comes before the prophet, it says when he came with his horses and his chariots, what does the prophet tell him to do? The prophet doesn't say, well, I, let, me, let, me, let me count all this, make sure you brought enough money with you. Uh, let me count all this, make sure you got the right amount here. Remember, he hadn't requested anything. He just tells him to go down to the River Jordan and dip seven times. And, and, and Naaman gets upset about that. Uh, he said, there's, there's rivers back home better than the river here. I could have done that back home. I made a long journey for nothing. That's what he's saying right here. Brought all this stuff for nothing. But his servant said, if he'd have bid thee do some great thing, you'd have done that. 
So he listened to the servants. He went down, dipped seven times in the river Jordan, and he came up pure. His leprosy was gone, and he still got his money. Still got his money. But this is Jacob's idea. You've got to take this with you. And then he says in verses 13 and 14, Take also your brother and arise, go again unto the man. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man. You know who the man is, don't you? The man's Joseph. That's his son. He has no idea the man he's talking about is his son. The governor in Egypt is his son. And he's calling the man. <laughs> but I think that's kind of interesting. Pilate referred to Jesus as the man one time. He said, behold the man. He was the man. He's the man Christ Jesus. Stand before the man. Take this to the man. If Jacob only knew that the man was his son. <laughs> Joseph was his son, being the governor of Egypt. But he did not know that. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man. Notice how he refers to God here. God Almighty. If you trace that expression through the scripture, you'll find when it's used, it's used in a situation where it will take the Almighty God to carry out the promise that's under consideration. I'll just give you one example. In the book of Genesis, in chapter 15, excuse me, chapter 17, you'll find where God appears to Abraham as God Almighty, and this is where he's going to promise Abraham a child. He's going to have a child when he's 100 years of age. His wife Sarah's going to have a child when she's 90. That's going to require some power, isn't it? That's going to require the work of an almighty God. So he says, may the almighty God give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And the man took that present, and they took double money in their hand, and Benjamin and rose up and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. He's got, they got three problems. These brothers got three problems. They got to go back to Egypt and explain why they still have the money. Number two, they don't know for sure he's going to release Simeon. And number three, they've got to protect Benjamin. Three main problems. So they get back there and they stand before Joseph. They don't know who Joseph is, but Joseph knows who they are. And then notice in verse 16. And when Joseph saw Benjamin... Now, Joseph saw all of them. He saw all ten of them. Right? But it says when he saw Benjamin. Benjamin was the full brother of Joseph. They had the same father and the same mother. He's the youngest of the twelve sons of Jacob. Joseph loved his younger brother. He hadn't seen his younger brother in 22 years. The last time he saw his younger brother, Benjamin, Benjamin was probably about 10 years of age. Joseph was 17. He's now around 32. A person's appearance can change drastically from the time they're 10 to the time they're 32, right? But Joseph recognizes him. Joseph sees Benjamin and is going to prompt Joseph to do something, not because he saw all the, his brothers, but because he saw one brother whose name is Benjamin. What does the name Benjamin mean? When Benjamin was born, remember Rachel died in childbirth. Read this in Genesis chapter 35. She died in childbirth when she had Benjamin. She named him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob named him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Those two expressions teach me that Benjamin is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the man of sorrows of all sorrows. And also he's the son of God's right hand. Where is he at right now? He's on the right hand of God making intercession for us. When Joseph saw Benjamin, the man of sorrows, we saw Benjamin, 
the son of my right hand, it moved him to do something. Notice what he says now in verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of his house, bring these men home and slay and make ready for these men shall dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph bade and the man brought the men into Joseph's house and the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said because of the money that was returning our sacks at the first time when we brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for bondmen in our asses. But that's not true. That's not true, but that's what they're thinking in their mind. What they're thinking is totally false. Joseph has no intention whatsoever of doing that. He is going to prepare a great feast for them. Is that not mercy and grace? Joseph is an example of a, of a miracle of God. If there was anybody that you might thought would have been bitter, it would have been Joseph. If there's anybody who you thought might would want to take vengeance on people who mistreated him, who sold him into slavery, he winds up in prison, it being Joseph. But not so. Joseph is going to provide. He's a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the provider. You are the receivers. Do you know that? Christ does all the providing. We do all the receiving. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, that we have such a great provider. Joseph is going to provide for his brother. He's going to prepare a great feast for them. Now, the sons will find this out in, in just a little while. They, they come to the steward and they tell the steward, they plead their case with Joseph's steward. And we come down to verse 23 and the steward replies and says, Peace be to you, fear not. Your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money and he brought Simeon out unto them. Two problems are solved. The money problem is solved. He says, I had your money. And he went and got Simeon out. That's problem number two has been solved right off the bat. And now they come into Joseph's house, but notice what he does in verse 24. And the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet. He gave their ashes provender. And they made ready the present against Joseph when he came at noon, for they heard that he should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought in the present which was in their hand in the house and bowed themselves to him to the earth. Does that remind you of anything? Remember the dream in Genesis chapter 37 where two dreams are given to Joseph and both dreams teach the same thing, the day was going to come when they would all bow down to him. The first time they came, they bowed down, but there was 10. Not this time, there's 11. The dream has been fulfilled. It was given twice. One was an earthly vision. One was a heavenly vision. It's been fulfilled. And a couple of verses later, you'll read where they bowed themselves again. Twice. He had two dreams where they'd bow down. Twice they bowed down before Joseph. It is fulfilled. God gave six dreams up to this point. He gave two to Joseph. They've both been fulfilled now. He gave one to the to the butler that Joseph properly interpreted. It came to pass just like he said. He gave one to the baker. It came to pass just exactly like he said. And he gave two to Pharaoh, teaching to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph tells him, these two are one, for God has showed you about what he is going to do. In other words, God blessed the land abundantly in the seven years of plenty to bring forth a sufficient amount to carry them through the seven years of famine. Why, where did the seven years of famine come? God brought the seven years of famine as well. God working behind the scenes. God in his providence. So they bowed themselves to him to the earth. 
And he asked them of their welfare, and he said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spake? Is he yet alive? And they answered, Thy servant, our father is in good health, yet he is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. This is the second time they bowed. And he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin. This is the second time we're told he saw his brother Benjamin. Did he not see the other ten? Yes, he saw the other ten. He saw all 11 of them as they bowed before him. But it's Benjamin that gets his attention. So what does this cause Joseph to do now as the great provider? He lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. Now if you think about this, you see, they could have brought any child that would be about the age of Benjamin if God wasn't in this, and Joseph wouldn't know if it was Benjamin or not. See, they don't know he's Joseph. But Joseph would know if it was Benjamin or not, and he sees Benjamin, and he knows it's Benjamin. Just like God knows everything about you and everything about me. There's nothing God does not know. So he says, God be gracious to thee, my son. And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother. Not his brothers, his brother. And he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. Now, we won't look at it tonight, but there's seven times in Genesis 37 and Genesis 50, in the life of Joseph, where he weeps. Seven is the number of perfection and completion. Seven times he weeps. This is time number two. This has caused him to become very emotional. He weeps. He washes his face. He went out and refrained himself and said, Set on bread. And they set on for him by himself and for them by themselves and for the Egyptians which did eat with him by themselves because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews. For that's an abomination unto the Egyptians. And they set before him the firstborn. Another point. How did Joseph know who the... How did he know the birth order? Only Joseph would have known the birth order. If Joseph hadn't been Joseph, he'd just been somebody else, he wouldn't have known the birth order. But he sets them around the table according to the birth order from the oldest to the youngest. And they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the mar men marvel one on another. In other words, they see this and they marvel at it. They, they thought, How can this be? How does he know who the youngest is? How does he know who the oldest is? How does he know who the middle child is? Joseph knew, and he set them all around the table according to the birth order. And he took and sent, sent messes unto them from before him. I like that word, mess. <laughs> you don't hear that anymore, do you? I used to hear that all the time growing up. You know, uh, I'm going to go catch me a mess of fish. <laughs> I'm going down to the garden to get me a mess of beans. <laughs> you never hear those kind of words anymore. People are missing out. <laughs> Here's a mess. That doesn't mean you made a mess. Going, you're going to get a mess. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> so he sent messes to all of them. But notice what he did for Benjamin. Benjamin's mess was five times so much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. <laughs> now this little review about this. Here is not just a meal. Here's a banquet. Who provided the meal? Who provided the banquet? Joseph did. What did the... What did his brothers provide? Nothing. He's the provider. They're the receivers. Joseph determined what the meal was going to be. Joseph determined how many dishes there was going to be. 
he determined how much each person was going to get. And one brother got five times more than the rest of them. And that's Benjamin. Benjamin was not in that conspiracy. Benjamin was not in that group of brothers that sold him down in Egypt. Benjamin was not. Benjamin would get five times as much. Problem number three is solved. The money problem is solved. Simeon's out. That's solved. Benjamin now is uh, being shown favor by Joseph. That's all. And right now they're eating like there was no famine around them. I don't know what they ate when they came down from Canaan. I'm, I know they took enough victuals with them, uh, enough messes with them, <laughs> enough victuals with them, you know, to make the trip from Canaan's land down to Egypt. But I imagine it was uh, kind of scarce. I imagine it was rationed out. They're sitting down at a banquet table. They're sitting down at a table with Joseph, the governor of the land, and they got all they can eat. It's like going to Monell's. <laughs> if you've never been to Monell's, if you've been to Monell's, you know what I'm talking about. It's like going to Monell's. There's just plenty there. And when you get that food, they'll bring more. It's like going to Monell's. But there's a famine in the land, but they're eating like there's not. And their fear has left them. They now have peace. The bondage has left them. Simeon's been released. And their concern about the welfare of Benjamin has been taken away because they see that Joseph gave him five times more than they got. And I don't think they minded that one bit. <laughs> oh, they're happy, aren't they? It's amazing. The sinners they were, the wretched men that they were, getting treated like royalty. Those wretched sinners <laughs> that sold Joseph in the very beginning, that conspired against him, that envied him and hated him, they're now sitting at the banquet table, my friends, with Joseph, the governor of the land. And I can say this tonight for myself, if I don't say it for you, we're all wretched, miserable sinners in the sight of God, apart from the grace of God. And yet here we are in the house of God, and we're at the banquet house of God, and Jesus Christ is providing the meal for us tonight, and every time we assemble ourselves together. The Song of Solomon, chapter 2, one of my favorites. I'm the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down on his tree with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. In other words, he said, here's a fruit tree, and I sat down on the fruit tree, and I benefited from the fruit tree. The tree brought forth fruit, and I sat down on it with great delight, for the fruit was sweet to my taste. Is there anything about any aspect of the gospel that's not sweet to your heart and sweet to your soul? Is the doctrine of election sweet? Is the doctrine of predestination sweet? Is the doctrine of the quickening power of God and born in sinners of the Spirit of God, is that sweet? Is justification sweet? reconciliation and justification and redemption, my friends, and Christ being surety for us. I'm telling you, they're all sweet, aren't they? He said, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. <laughs> In the book of Luke chapter 22, verses 29 and 30, the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples, as, I, as the Father appointed unto me a kingdom, I appoint unto you a kingdom, that you may come and sit and eat at my table in my kingdom and dine with me. That's what the gospel church is. That's what he's pointing to, the gospel church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a banqueting table, and the banner over him is love. 
when you come here, you expect to hear about the great love of God, do you not? The everlasting love of God, the great love of God, the love of God that sent his son in this world to live for you and die for you. And you come to a place, brother, where you should feel the love of God and see the love of God among the brothers and sisters in Christ. I tell you, there's a lot of hatred in the world. But when I come here to the Lord's house, to the house of God, I can feel the love of God. <laughs> I can see the love of God. That's what charity is. Charity is love in action. I can see it. I can feel it. I can benefit from it. What's it worth to you tonight to have brotherly love among those who assemble themselves together? You know, we should love one another for Christ's sake. God loves you for his son's sake. When God sees you, he sees you through his son. As Joseph saw Benjamin, the other ten brothers benefited from Joseph seeing Benjamin. Joseph saw Benjamin, it provoked him to, to have arrangements made for them to come to this house and eat. When he saw Joseph, excuse me, Benjamin again, it provoked him to set on that table before them a great banquet of delicacies and great delights for them to eat. And for at least a period of time, they were able to fill themselves up and not have any fear and any bondage and to know that their trip had been blessed of God. I don't know if any of them even thought about that. No record about it. I don't know if any of them even thought about that. I hope they did. <laughs> but you see, Joseph is not through dealing with them. <laughs> there are some things still to come, but at least for a while. And brother, I tell you, Monday through Saturday out here in this world, there's a lot of things we have to deal with. But thank God for a brief period of time on the Lord's Day on Sunday and on Wednesday night here, we can come out of this world in which we live. And for at least for a period of time. See, I hadn't even thought about that COVID since we've been here. For about, uh, you know, uh, an hour or so, I hadn't even given the first thought to it. You know, but I've, but I've enjoyed the thoughts about Jesus. <laughs> I've enjoyed the thoughts about what he's done for me and what he's done for us. I've enjoyed what the Bible teaches me about his grace and his mercy and his compassion. Remember, Joseph wept seven times uh, in, his, in, his, uh, in the uh, uh, biblical record we have here. And Jesus was a man of compassion, and Jesus wept. And I'm telling you right now, on the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus Christ sees you, and he's a God of compassion. He reaches out with that compassion on a regular and a daily basis. Does he not? Okay. Read chapter 44. <laughs> and we'll pick up in chapter 44 when we meet next time. <laughs>